You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 8th of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello, it's Saturday the 8th of February. This is Monocle's House View. Today, I have more people supporting me in the black community that announced for me because they know me. They know who I am. Three former chairs of the Black Caucus. The only African-American woman that ever been elected to the United States Senate. A whole range of people. No, My point no, is... That's not true. The other that's one is true. here. <laughs> <laughs> I said the first. Thank I said the first Why can't the left unite? After the chaos of the Iowa caucus, one thing is clear. The Democratic Party hasn't yet found a candidate that most voters are ready to get behind. Plus, TV ratings are in decline. Even the Oscars can't command the numbers it once did. But is this fracture being felt in the world's politics too? All that and the day's newspapers. Monocle's House View starts now. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'm joined today by two of our favourite guests. Florence Biederman is from the AFP and Joe Lynham is a journalist and broadcaster. Florence, were you just putting a face there? <laughs> no, favourite guest. I said, you say, I, say, I hope you don't say that to all your guests. I'm sure she does, actually. Yeah, yeah I suspect. Well, you're both broadcasters. You know how it is. Uh, so uh, you, you're only you're only assuming you're projecting. OK, you're projecting. That's what it is. Um, let Let's talk about the left, because the Iowa caucus, what a shambles. It was absolute chaos. The technology that was supposed to make voting in the Iowa caucus easy instead led to pandemonium. And despite all of that, the closeness of the result has made it clear that Americans as a whole haven't come to a collective decision as to whom they'll send to face Donald Trump. And of course, without that, I mean, the the left is lost, isn't it, Florence? Yeah, I mean, maybe also it's a bit early to say, like, uh, uh, they are that uh, in a shamble and divided. I mean, Iowa is a special caucus. There will be uh, lots of others. I mean, at the time being, yes, you see that there is uh, uh, those two trends, like uh, the lefty one, let's say, Bernie Sanders, and the others uh, who are competing, and uh, there is uh, there is still no decision. And it, it will probably be, be, be hard uh, to say before uh, other caucuses. But w- when you speak about the left, yeah, this is something you can see also in Great Britain with Corbyn, who couldn't uh, unite the the, the party. Mm. Uh, you can see that also in France, you know, where the left is split now between like the more moderate socialist and La France Insoumise. I mean, this is a phenomenon you see in, in many countries, th- those two trends of a more radical side and a more moderate and, let's say, maybe uh, realist side. Yeah, and I mean, Joe, even in Brexit, I mean, we saw that the, the, the Leave voters just could not come to a, to a unified position? No, they struggled. Um, uh, I was speaking to uh, a former prominent MP, I was stressing the word former uh, prominent MP uh, last week, and he was talking about just how close they came to getting a second referendum last year. And he was saying the real issue for them was the ambition of the Lib Dems, who thought they were going to get 80 or more seats in the in the general election in December. And as a result, they pushed for this general election, which basically did them and the idea of a second referendum out of power. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the whole 
fact that the Labour Party couldn't seem to nail their colours to the mast. They didn't. They couldn't decide which way they were going. Do you think, Florence, that the American left can learn from the Labour Party's failed general election campaign? I, I don't know if you can compare, really, because Corbyn was also an element uh, that made it difficult to, to unite uh, the party. I think he was pretty divisive. Uh, and I don't know if you can compare, like, Brexit and uh, what happened in this country and America. Like, Brexit was obviously, and the fact that people who used to vote Labour didn't vote Labour anymore uh, was obviously something different. Like, you feel this phenomenon of people who felt marginalised uh, marginalized in the globalisation, so uh, they wouldn't vote for uh, their favourite party anymore. Uh, I, I'm not sure the US is in, in such a situation. Mm. But also in Germany, remember, the left has collapsed there as well. The SPD has collapsed. The party of the left is now the Green Party and they're not as extreme as they used to be. They have accepted that there will be a role for nuclear power for the next couple of years uh, in a way that they didn't a decade ago. But the, the SPD, which was the kind of the political cleavage in Germany, for the want of a better phrase, um, has disappeared. And it's, you know, it's it's in now weighing the idea, does it walk away from the Grand Coalition in Berlin um, because it's going to lose even more votes if it props up the CDU, which is also becoming mm. unpopular. And I definitely want to come back to that when we have a look at the newspapers because that is all over the German press today. Just before we leave America and, and, and the fact that they can't unite behind a common enemy, wh- where do you think those divisions come from, Florence? Well, because maybe the enemy is stronger. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I wouldn't exalt what, what Trump is doing, but he managed definitely to, to occupy a ground uh, that the Democrats uh, have not uh, occupied. Remember when, uh, I think it summed it up, when Hillary Clinton mentioned the deplorable, like the voters who would vote for Trump. I think that was really uh, a manifestation of this. Like there is this part of the country who is listening to Trump, who he has this appeal, and it, it's very difficult for the left to, to have an answer to this. Yeah. Oh, look, our coffee's arrived. Thank you, Jeff. Could I add something on the on the whole Iowa thing? I mean, first of all, the idea of caucusing is a shambles. It is a joke. You physically <laughs> cluster into corners of a hall in freezing cold temperatures in, in January or February, and then you shuffle around as the votes kind of play out. Then you have to phone into some central office with, with, with the results of your shuffling in the hall. That is laughable in the, mm. the 21st century. We also saw reports in the American media, you saw it in the New York Times, that uh, right-wing Republican groups deliberately blocked the phone lines. And it, the number for the uh, for the caucuses was posted on 4chan, which is a, it's a right-wing uh, kind of website, so that uh, the Republican voters, Trump MAGA fans, could phone up and deliberately block the line to make it look shambolic. And this is all about perception. This is very clever by the Republicans. They paint a picture... Whatever you think about Donald Trump, at least he gets things done. He's not a shambles like the Democratic Party. Yeah. Let's have a look at Ireland because obviously you, you, you've got a, a strong. Uh, a, I'm Irish. Are you doing yes? <laughs> A connection. <laughs> Nobody ever wants to make assumptions, right? Yeah. Well, well, no, I am Irish and I was there this week. Yeah. Uh, and uh, of course, the left there is Sinn Fein. It's amazing. The, uh, the, the Irish Labour Party, which was, you know, the left wing party has all but collapsed because they uh, went into government uh, with uh, Fine Gael, which is the centre right party uh, in 2011 after the economic collapse. They were punished politically for um, allowing austerity to happen in a way that the Lib Dems were uh, punished here in the UK. Um, so the left now is, as you say, Sinn Féin. And they, of course, have a lot of baggage. 
Uh, they are attached to a private army. Uh, it's the only Western European political party which has its own private army. And they are very popular in the latest polling because they represent change, they represent left-wing change. And my assessment is that the Irish electorate have banked the economic recovery. They say, that's fine. I will take that. I'm assuming now the economy is safe, so I can now gamble with my vote and do something to level up, to use that phrase that's used a lot. And that means uh, better housing, better public transport, better health care, stuff of the left. Because mm. they're assuming that the stuff of the right, the economy, that's sorted. I don't need to worry about that. And that's a very big, big assumption. Do you think it's the end of centrist politics in no, Ireland? No, I don't. It's, uh, Ireland is the only Western European country that doesn't have the so-called political cleavage. The two biggest parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, are both centre-right. They're Tweedledum and Tweedledumer. They are very similar parties. But then again, in the United States, Democrats and the Republicans are also centre-right parties. And that has been the case for 200 years. Who knows? Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael's lineage goes back to the Civil War in Ireland. Immediately after uh, the Brits left in 1921, 22, uh, it was whether you were pro-treaty with the, with the UK or anti-treaty. Anti-treaty were seen as Fianna Fáil and pro-treaty were seen as Fine Gael. It goes back 100 years. It could go for another 100 years because memories are so long and divisive. Mm-hmm. And just you were mentioning Macron earlier, Florence, and, and just looking at the, the left-right divide there in France. I mean, we've seen the right really wither away. And the left. <laughs> no, no, I mean, he, he made this incredible gamble and he won it. Like, the right is in Chambord, uh, but they are still, let's say, strong in municipalities, for example. But the left has, like, disappeared. I mean, and I was thinking, like, of when we mentioned the Labour Party, I mean, maybe this is also something that is kind of a, a threat for them. I mean, it is possible for a social democrat party to, to disappear. This is what happened in France. So Macron was really very clever in the way he did it. So you would define him now, I would say, like more centre-right than anything else. You know, after the, these years in power, you can more or less have a de- definition of who he is because he pretended he was neither right nor left. But that's what brought him to power. In the end, yes, you, you, you still have this, you know, classifications. Your policy tends to be more favourable to, uh, let's say, the business community than to the government. So you have this thing, but he, I mean... People don't need probably these definitions anymore, right, left. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder if it is a problem then of mixed messaging. So if we look at a, a broader picture, take popular entertainment, television is in decline. In the late 90s, more than 55 million people watched the Oscars. Tomorrow's ceremony, be lucky to crack maybe 30 million. So generally speaking, there are less people watching TV than ever before. Now that's I would imagine because of the rise of streaming, there's no more appointment to view television, is there? I, I would. Um, you're right about the figures, but you're talking about linear television, as in people sitting down at a set time to watch it. You're right, that number is going down. But if you add up all the clips that are watched from the Oscars in the immediate aftermath, I'd say you're still as high as 55 mm. million. People might not watch the three-hour ceremony in, in a linear television, but they might watch large swathes of it or certainly the chunks of it that they want. It's a different type of consumption. As someone who's worked in television for uh, more than 20 years, I need to defend television. Its death has been predicted quite a few times. And uh, as Mark Twain said, it's been greatly exaggerated. For big, big events, 
in this country, in the UK, and in my country, uh, in Ireland, people do sit down to watch big events that could be something like Strictly Come Dancing, that could be something uh, like Only Fools and Horses, that could be whatever it is, but it's a part of a national occasion. We In this country, there was a very uh, popular comedy show called Gavin and Stacey, and that was watched by, I don't know, was it 12 or 13 million people, all sitting down at the same time to watch it. So I don't think television is dead. I just think it'll be chopped up into little bite-sized pieces. Mm. I mean, that brings us on to what's happening with the with the British Broadcasting Corporation, with the BBC. So the government has said that the BBC should no longer, or it's suggesting that perhaps in the future, the BBC should no longer uh, have a licence fee whereby people in Britain are uh, uh, made, it's mandatory to pay a licence fee in order to to receive the channel. Uh, And that looks like it's going to be swept aside. Huge debate about this, Florence, with people saying, well, actually, you you pay for Netflix, you pay for Amazon, you pay for all of those, these other platforms, which don't give you uh, sport, which don't give you uh, national events, which don't give you radio as well, which, I mean, just the, the BBC, as a national broadcaster, gives so much more than a platform like Netflix, for instance. Yeah, I, I think I, I was really surprised by this debate. I mean, a bit shocked too. Like, as you say, there is this uh, this really strong sense for the BBC of, you know, common interest, of educating the public, you know, of being a public service. And uh, the Boris Johnson government is purely and simply uh, putting that into question and attacking them. And you cannot help thinking, like, there is kind of a revenge in this. Like, uh, the BBC has always been earmarked, let's say, globally as center left if if you you need some tags or and uh, they, they were they can be very critical of of the government and i think they were they should uh, be very critical of uh, that's their job they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they were also somehow accused to be more uh, anti-Brexit. I mean, so you, you really have the feeling now that they are in power with the big majority, this government is is, uh, is attacking uh, uh, the idea of this public service. I mean, uh, and uh, I, I don't know how far they will go, uh, but I hope somehow there will be kind of a people defending the idea that uh, there should be a public uh, media. Uh, I, fin- per- uh, and also maybe I'm French, so, you know, <laughs> public service and the fact that uh, a government helps uh, funding uh, public services is, is an idea which um, I accept. I would put I would put most of the current cabinet on a plane to other countries in Europe and force them to watch their television, force them to watch Rai Uno all day or Rai Due, and then put them in the, into, into Poland and into the other countries that don't have the same public service broadcasting and say, this is what you will get mm. if you do away with the BBC. Uh, and you made the reference to, you know, people are talking to Netflix, that's fine. My friend and colleague Dan Johnson was covering the trial of the guy who killed a lot of people in Manchester a few years ago. And he he tweeted a very funny tweet saying, um, I didn't see the Netflix reporter here and I, I missed the Amazon <laughs> Prime reporter on this issue. I'm sure they're here because they're so popular and charge as much as the BBC for their services, but I couldn't see them in the courtroom. You know what's also really interesting, and Florence, you brought this up, which is that it does seem like revenge from the from Boris Johnson's government, that it, they do seem to be uh, saying the BBC attacked us, therefore we are going to attack the BBC back again. Uh, and you're seeing this in America too, because Donald Trump's administration has just fired... 
the two witnesses who provided the most damaging testimony during his impeachment investigation. So the Army Lieutenant uh, Colonel Alexander Vindman has gone and Ambassador Gordon Sondland has gone, amongst others. Um, Sondland was one of the biggest Trump fans there ever was. He he was rewarded for massive donations. He's a hotel uh, millionaire. For his donation, he was given Brussels as an ambassador to the European Union, possibly the second most important ambassadorial role you can get. Uh, And he was given that, was a total MAGA fan, but then decided strangely (laughs) to tell the truth. <laughs> well, he was not a real politician, but <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Yeah. He wasn't a politician at all. He was a I think he has been caught in a situation. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're appointed ambassador. You have a kind of a role to play diplomacy, etc. Maybe he was not ready for all the contortioning and all the things you have to do when when you're in politics and when you're a diplomat. But maybe that makes him. He a was real... too honest. <laughs> exactly. Maybe that he makes told him the truth a real and now he's fired. That, yeah, that, yeah, that's that's what I meant. Like, yeah. and, and maybe this Lieutenant is not what Colonel, you should always do. Lieutenant Colonel Vintman his parents uh, came from Ukraine originally. This is a guy who served in a U.S. uniform uh, in the Gulf War and in, and has served the country for many decades, was marched out of the White House. Mm. So what does this mean? Uh, because, uh, I mean, and this is a point others have made before, but but those Republicans that voted to, to acquit Trump, they are mostly honourable, honest people. And yet... They they supported a lie. I mean, this is fear, though, but they're also frightened of, uh, I think, as the New York Times pointed out, they're frightened of being given a nickname by Trump, of then being hounded out by him in some way. It is fear that was forced them to lie. They're they're worried that they will not get re-elected. And exactly as you say, that they will be publicly shamed on Twitter uh, by uh, President Trump. But that is the point. There's only one Republican Uh, Mitt Romney, who said, no, I'm not going to go along with this. And he's now been disinvited to the conservative, uh, you know, get together in a few weeks time. But he will go down in history as a man of honour, won't he, Florence? Uh, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well... President Trump sees him as a failure because he didn't pick out Obama in 2012. But, you know, I mean, if Trump is re-elected, which is kind of a possibility, maybe he will be forgotten in history in the end. Well... Trump is five to six onwards, on in betting terms, uh, to be re-elected. And given the chaos on the Democratic side, I think that's a good price. As in, you know, I think it'll tighten even further. We were just discussing before we came on air, though, whether his mental and physical health might stand up to it. Now, there are many who would argue that his mental health has never been up to it. <laughs> um, but uh, but could he really withstand another term, Florence? I mean, when you look at him now, he's clearly feeling the stress. <coughs> Well, this is the question you could have from the start. You know, he could make the four years, which so uh, yes, I think he's ready for it. I think being in power is a is a powerful. Um, powerful yeah, uh, <laughs> in in any sense, like uh, it gives you lots of adrenaline. I mean, this this is the uh, the best role in the world somehow. You know, so yeah, he will cling to it. He's also younger than Bernie Sanders, and I think he might be younger than Joe Biden as yeah. well, but not by much. Well, it's much of a muchness. They're both. They're all late seventies. Yeah. Um, his physical health. He got a doctor to sign a cert, which he had written, which said that he is in prime condition. That doctor has since kind of retracted that analysis. Uh, so I don't know about his physical health. His mental health has always been an issue. He's certainly paranoid. He's unforgiving, and he's revengeful. 
Let's move on to the papers because, frankly, we could be sitting here dissing Donald Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the list could be longer. (laughs) I want to go to Germany now because big story coming out of there and that's what's happening in Syringia. Now, yesterday we heard, uh, well, a big story yesterday. Why why don't you set it up for us? Uh, Thuringen, uh, as they say in Germany, or Thuringia, uh, as we say here in English, but I bet you the vast majority of people uh, in Europe have never heard of this province until this week. Uh, it is uh, the former uh, DDR or GDR. Um, it has elected a FDP minister president and FDP are normally regarded as the liberal and the liberals. Uh, but they got there with the votes of the far right um, Alternative für Deutschland or AFD. And this has caused chaos uh, in Germany, not just in this state of Thuringen, uh, but also now in Berlin, because the CDU stepped aside to make this vote happen. And it doesn't look good for them that they in any way enabled the AFD to get uh, in any power. So now there's an issue as to whether the SPD CDU grand coalition, GroKo, can survive this. Um, Obviously, Chancellor Merkel has got another 18 months or so in power, but it doesn't look great at the moment. The guy who is now minister president from uh, the for the FDP, uh, the, uh, the the Liberal Party, he has offered to resign, but not immediately. Uh, so God gave me strength, but not yet. That kind of thing. <laughs> um, so I don't know where this is, how this is going to play out, but I think this is going to run and run actually, and it could end up with new elections or more resignations, or the Grand Coalition could break up. Now, you've got Die Welt in front of you. How are they reporting it? Aus dem Ernstfall in Thüringen wird ein Ernstfall in Berlin. From the chaos in Thüringen, the, there is now chaos in Berlin, is their headline, basically underlining what I'm saying, that this is now no longer a provincial issue, that this could be a uh, federal issue, a national issue. And uh, who knows how it's going to play out, but it is certainly causing issues. And it also raises question on the authority of the, sex, the appointed successor of uh, uh, Angela Merkel, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, AKK. AKK it's, yeah. it's easier to say it this way. No, because actually she asked the party locally not to do this alliance and they didn't listen to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is also a big question on her authority, on yeah. the kind of leader she will be, whether she can really succeed uh, Angela Merkel. I don't think she's long for this world politically. Uh, and I, yeah, she, she doesn't have the charisma and she doesn't have the authority. So what's next? I and mean. bad glasses as well. So I mean, she, <laughs> <laughs> uh, What kind of glasses do you think would suit her best? Uh, either no glasses or thin glasses or just cooler glasses. She, she now has bottle tops. They're, they're just not a good look. Lenses? <laughs> Lenses. Yeah, why not? Absolutely. And this, we should never judge a politician by their glasses. I think that's I, how I we solve German politics being, in this studio. I was studio. being flippant. Uh, <laughs> I was being flippant, of course. Uh, but Advising unfor- on lenses. No, but you know what? I think it's really important, actually. I think that, that, that uh, presentation has a great deal to do with electability. No, I, I think agree. it reflects her personality too. Like she, she seems to be like pretty, you know, dull, expectable. I mean, uh, and really maybe stern, like uh, um, school teacher. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. And uh, I mean, people who met her like say she's really I, I completely don't think she... devoid of any charisma. That's she, what I'm... she was in, in in London recently, and some colleagues went to press conference, and they they were a bit shocked. Like, it's not the person you expect will lead. Well, hang, uh, I mean, to, to be fair to Angela Merkel, she's not, you know, uh, joke a minute either. Uh, she, I mean, Angela Merkel is just regarded as a safe pair of hands. But behind the scenes, Angela Merkel is she's very a killer. clever. 
very clever. She got rid of Helmut Kohl after, was it was it 16 years in power he'd been? She basically elbowed him out of the building. And you need to have the killer instinct to do that. But in front of the cameras, she looks about, she's reassuringly, she's known as Mutti, as you know, in Germany, as regarded as a kind of maternal, calm, reassuring figure. Behind the scenes, she's a killer. But, I mean, charisma's not always a, a plus. I mean, look at Boris Johnson. But instance. he's now Prime Minister for at least five more years and possibly ten. Uh, and, but, you think but he doesn't have charisma? I'm saying, no, he absolutely he does. does have ah, okay. charisma. Uh, but perhaps that's all he's got. What we've got is a fantastically charismatic person as Prime Minister. But what about the substance? Well, well, I think behind there is always something hidden, maybe. No, just like with Angela Merkel. There is the face you present, like the nice buffoon, etc. So you you don't, I mean, maybe you, you don't uh, uh, distrust him enough. And then there is an ideology behind him. There is a party behind him, uh, so he's not as, uh, you know, uh, as shallow. charming and shallow. He has an agenda. He definitely has an agenda. But the fact that he presents it in this like way, disheveled, etc., makes you forget the agenda or makes it look better or maybe uh, uh, easier or funnier than it is. But it's a deeply it's, it's nationalist like and conservative agenda, it's like which a you feel and look you, you over can here, feel. Don't look over here. And, and I feel as a foreigner, like uh, since he has been elected, you know, uh, the global Britain like Britain uh, with a new role in the world. I mean, I hear this every day now. So it's really impressive because it's so nationalist. And when you look at this guy, no, you have the feeling he's funny. He's, uh, you know, he's full of humor and he's eclectic. But... Is he really? It depends on the country. Um, some countries, the, 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 the culture means that they really want a guy to go out for a pint with, for example. That's one little benchmark. You say, would you go for a pint with this guy? And that's the question that a lot of men, I don't know about women, uh, think <laughs> when they look at a political character. Who wants to go out for a pint with Jeremy Corbyn who didn't drink, first of all, and was a kind of a dull old kind of grandpa? Or at least you'd get a great story out of uh, Boris Johnson. Um, the same in Matteo Salvini in in Italy. How many selfies has he done? That's his thing. He does this big smile and selfie arm around you. I'm the guy you can like, you can trust. Personality matters in some countries. In Northern Europe, it doesn't matter. It's policies and seriousness and can you solve the issues of the day? So that's why Finland is suddenly the new beacon the idol of, of liberalness. You've got a 34-year-old woman with very little political background running the country, and she's not a particularly great storyteller or you know personality, but people looked and said, wow, that's, that's not bad. You can skip a few generations and go for a young woman with some new ideas. Let us turn to France and Mr. Macron. Uh, and uh, By the way, in France, we don't feel like we should go and uh, have a pint with our leaders. We want them to be... <laughs> You know, above us, a Pernod. Uh, like uh, Jupiter, you know, it, it's not our expectation of a leader. Yeah, so it's different for every country. <laughs> this is a parenthesis. It's different, different for every country, that's my point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. But well, just, you certainly don't I want agree Macron, with that. You don't want Macron to have been drinking when he uh, is addressing uh, the subject of nuclear weapons, which is something he's been doing recently. Yeah, and I don't think also his popularity is that big that many people would want to go and have a drink with him. Like recent polls shows, like mm. uh, people can have maybe some esteem for what he's doing, but they don't like him like he did. He didn't manage to be a likable uh, 
the nice guy uh, uh, you would like to to go and drink with. It's, yeah, okay. When you speak of nuclear armament, of course, <laughs> this is not the kind of topic you would expect. No, he, he made one of these, you know, uh, proposition to Europe, like uh, which he has been doing since he's in power. His uh, one of his goal is really to 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 make a, a real force of this uh, uh, EU. And uh, his um, the point is um, he's uh, one of the only one to do this. Uh, and each time the answer let's say, from Germany is a bit disappointing. So his idea is that Europe has to have a nuclear policy. Uh, France is now, after Brexit, the only country in the EU having a nuclear power. So he's suggesting not to share it, not to, to be the big force in Europe uh, with the nuclear, but that, that there be a common policy and uh, that other countries um, participate in this policy. Mm. Uh, but that won't be easy because many of them, including like Poland, think they are rather under the American umbrella. Uh, and um, this is since Trump came to power, it became obvious that you couldn't rely, Europe couldn't rely uh, entirely for its security uh, on the United States. And I think that's one of the reasons Macron has been, uh, again, coming up with uh, with this idea of a European nuclear policy. And I mean, he was pushing to be kind of leader of Europe, isn't he? Yeah, but again, that's what he has been doing uh, since uh, since he has been elected, considering Angela Merkel is really weakened in Germany and uh, on the way out. Uh, and, well, Britain out of the EU. So um, it became kind of, it was kind of a role that was ready for him. Mm-hmm. Sadly, we're out of time, which means we don't have enough time to discuss the sexuality of Philip Schofield, a British television presenter who has revealed that he's gay, which is good because what we wanted to say was, why is this a story? <laughs> it's not a story. Uh, it's absolutely not a story. And when my phone uh, vibrated yesterday morning with an, an urgent alert from Sky News saying Philip Schofield is gay, I said, seriously? I, I signed up to that service so that I can get major significant <laughs> political developments or catastrophes where I'm sorry, I really need to know what's going on in the world. Someone who works in television is gay. That's news? I don't know. <laughs> That's all for today. Our supervising producer was Ben Ryland. Our researcher was Giacomo Harper. Our studio manager was Nora Hull. Many thanks to Joe Lynham and Florence Biederman for joining me here in the studio. Now, tomorrow, this programme will come live from Zurich. We'll be broadcasting from Dufferstrasse 90. Uh, uh, do pop in. Our studios there are set up so that we can actually have a live audience in studio. Uh, and I'd love to meet you. So uh, if you find yourself in Seafelt, well, do come and say hello. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.